Good morning. If you've got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. We'll be continuing in our series in the I Am Statements in the Gospel according to John. So John chapter 15, and uh, while you're turning there, you'll have to forgive my voice. The flu struck my family this week, and uh, I'm, if I seem a little bit more low energy, it's because if I get too worked up, I'm going to start coughing, okay? So you don't want that. But we've got a, a sweet I am statement in the gospel according to John this morning that I look forward to studying with you. So is everybody there? John 15? We'll read through verse 17. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. These are precious verses. Let's pray. Lord, as we just read, apart from you we can do nothing. Lord, we confess that we are entirely dependent on your power and your moving in this time together for us to receive anything from your word. So Lord, would you please be with me as, as I teach. Help me to say only things that are true about your word. And would you be with all of us, Lord? Would you help us to think right thoughts about you leading to fruitfulness, leading to your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. These are some of the most beloved passages in the gospel according to John. These are verses that people like to put on coffee mugs and put up 
on their wall, which is, which is right, but it's important to remember where these passages fit into the grander scheme of the gospel according to John. So we are right in the middle. Chapter 15 is right in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, which is five whole chapters of the gospel according to John, the, a quarter of the book of John dedicated to the last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in private on the night that he will be betrayed and arrested and then crucified. Last week we looked at the opening of the farewell discourse section in chapter 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then we moved into chapter 14 which we looked at on Christmas Eve where Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that really starts to develop this theme that will run through the farewell discourse that Jesus is, is going away. He's going to the Father. Remember in chapter 14, he says, I go to the Father to prepare a place for you. So he's preparing his disciples for the truth that he will not be with them much longer, but then as 14 unfolds, he starts to say, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm gonna send the helper the Holy Spirit, he is going to be with you. And as he explains that relationship between God the Father and God the Son and this helper, the Holy Spirit, and how there's fellowship within the triune Godhead that will somehow be shared with the disciples, that they will all come and make their home with the disciples in this presence of the Holy Spirit. We start to see this beautiful picture of this abiding, self-sacrificial, loving fellowship that God has within himself that he is sharing with his disciples. And it's that fellowship made possible by the Holy Spirit developed in chapter 14 that Jesus will start explaining through this metaphor in chapter 15 of the vine and the branches. So it's important to know what happened in chapter 14 to really make sense of chapter 15, what Jesus says here in chapter 15. Now this text is pretty straightforward. Jesus is going to present the metaphor of the vine and the branches and then he is going to explain the metaphor, what to expect out of that. So in verses one to six, we'll see the metaphor and we'll look at the purpose of the true vine. So verses one to six is the purpose of the true vine. Jesus says again in verse one, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Or in verse five, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So here we have the elements of the metaphor. We've got a vine, we've got branches, we've got fruit. We've got a vine dresser. Someone who grows grapes is called a viticulturalist. You're welcome. That's for free. You can have that one for free. Uh, I am not a viticulturalist, nor am I the son of a viticulturalist. I don't know the first thing about grape vines. And this metaphor used to really bother me because I didn't know what a grapevine looked like. The only kind of vines that I was familiar with was the sort of creeping ivy that grew in my parents' flower bed. You know, so I would look at the ground and I would see this mess of just tangly vines and leaves all over the place and I would say, well, which part is Jesus? 
And I have since done some study about what grapevines are, and to my untrained eye, if I was going to walk up to a grapevine, the part that Jesus calls the vine, I would call the trunk. Okay, I know some of you have grapevines, and you're like, what is he talking about? But it's this big thing that comes up out of the ground. It grows up on a trellis. Okay, it's a big, thick, wooden-looking thing. And then coming off of it are branches that are vine-like and on which grow grape clusters. So that's what a grapevine looks like. If that helps you to picture that in your mind, and so you can see what Jesus is doing. It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? If it helps you, he's saying, I am the trunk, and you are the branches. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And so there is a connection that is deep, intimate, and most of all, it's life-giving. Okay, the, the vine brings up within itself the nutrients. It has within itself, in the case of Christ, has within itself everything that we need for life and godliness. And that vine is constantly pumping that essence into these branches so that these branches can, can live and these branches can grow and these branches can bear fruit. And Jesus says, that's me and that's you. Isn't that beautiful? What that metaphor is trying to establish. And Jesus will explain in this passage that that relationship between the vine and the branches is vital in the literal sense of that word. Look at verse four. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. He says abide, abide. That word is repeated several times in this passage, and that's kind of a strange word. That's not a word that we really use today. To abide means to to be in or to live in, but it really has this sense of remaining in is the the important aspect of that word, to stay in. So Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches, I abide in you, you abide in me, stay there. Always recognize how vital this relationship is because if you are not abiding in me, then you can do nothing. You have no life in yourself. You can only have what you need by abiding in in me, but if you do abide in Jesus, what does he say? You will bear fruit. It's an incredible picture. Jesus is the vine, you are the branches, but Jesus isn't just any vine, is he? What does he say in verse one? He is the true vine. And this is really important. This, this helps us understand really what's going on in this whole passage. What, is, what does the true vine mean? Well, true is a word that we use in contrast to another word, which is false. So Jesus has in mind a false vine that he is setting himself up in contrast to by saying, I am the true vine. Well, what, what is this false vine? When, when we understand this, we'll see that this metaphor that Jesus is unpacking, this description of himself, this I am statement, is actually much more significant and much older than what we often have in mind when we come to these verses. Look at this from Psalm 80. This is talking to God. 
says, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You recognize what that is talking about? God brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it. What is that a reference to? The Exodus. To Israel, we just finished reading the book of Exodus, right? Israel, the the people of God were enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land in Canaan. He drove out the nations before them. And the psalmist in Psalm 80 describes Israel as a vine that God brought out and then planted. This is actually a very common symbol that the Old Testament uses to describe Israel, the symbol of the vine. And Israel liked this symbol. They owned this symbol. Israel, for in their mind, the symbol of the vine was something like the stars and stripes would be to us. This was part of their identity. So when they would print coins, they would put grape vines on the coins because they were God's vine. They would They would carve grapevines on their important buildings. Israel was the vine of God. But look at this from Jeremiah chapter 2. In verse 21, God says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Interestingly, the majority of the times where this vine symbol is used to describe Israel in the Old Testament, which is quite frequent, the majority of the times that it's used is to, to describe Israel's lack of fruitfulness. It's very similar to what Jeremiah says, that, that God planted Israel as a vine and he wanted Israel to produce good fruit and Israel has not produced that good fruit. There's no better example of this than the passage at the beginning of Isaiah chapter five which is called the Song of the Vineyard. It's a song about this this relationship that God has with Israel as his, in this case, his vineyard. Look what this says in verse seven of Isaiah chapter five. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men, (coughs) excuse me, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, he looked for the fruit of justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he had a plan for them, he had a a purpose for them. When God gave Israel his law and planted them in the land of Canaan, what he wanted for Israel was for them to be a community that bore fruit, that bore the fruit of righteousness, that bore the fruit of justice, that bore the fruit of loving their neighbor, that bore the fruit of faithfulness to God. And as they were this community that bore that fruit, what God had hoped with Israel was that they would be like a city on a hill, that the other nations would see them and they would glorify Israel's God because of the fruit that was being born out of Israel. But Israel failed. That's what Isaiah 5 and these other verses is saying. Israel failed. God looked for that fruit of his choice vine and and instead there was the exact opposite. They had become a wild vine. And really they, they failed the same way that we all fail. Because that was actually just playing out of what Jesus says in verse five of our text that apart from Christ, 
You can do nothing. So Israel had God's law, but they did not yet have the means of keeping God's law, not, not perfectly. They didn't have the Holy Spirit that would enable them to keep God's law. And so all of us, apart from Christ and his presence in us by his Holy Spirit, are unable to keep God's law. But do you see what Jesus is doing when he says, I am the true vine? What he's referring to? He's referring to that false vine of Israel, and he's really doing what he's been doing through the whole book of John, when he says, I am the better Moses, when I am the better manna, I am the better feast of booths, I am the better Passover lamb. Jesus is saying that everything that Israel was supposed to be is fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is the true Israel, and the only Israelite, because he is the only one that obeyed God's law perfectly. He is the only one that bore the fruit that God was looking for out of his choice vine. And he is the one that will establish perfectly the community that God always intended for Israel to be. A community that that is bigger than just the nation of Israel. It's a community of, of branches made of Jews and Gentiles attached to the true vine of Jesus Christ, the faithful Israelite. But Jesus will be the one that creates the community that God always intended that bears that fruit leading to the glory of God. So this metaphor of Jesus saying, I am the true vine, you are the branches, it's much more than just an encouragement, and it's an encouragement. But it connects us to this broad plan that God has for all of history to create a people through whom he will bless all of the nations of the earth. But that also establishes that the point, the purpose of the true vine is fruitfulness. Just like the purpose of Israel was fruitfulness, a, a life, a community that, that was lived in such a way that it glorified God. This is the purpose here, that Jesus is the true vine, you are the branches, so that you will bear fruit that glorifies God. Look at verse eight. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The Father is looking for fruit. And that's why Jesus, in this metaphor, describes him as the vine dresser. This is really interesting. In verse one, this is the only I am statement in the whole Gospel of John that not only describes what Jesus is, but also what the Father is. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the viticulturalist. It ties into the metaphor just just absolutely beautifully. You think about this vine and its branches and the grapes growing and then here comes the, the gardener. Here comes the farmer, the vine dresser and he is examining that vine very closely. He's looking at you and your relationship to Jesus and he wants to make it better. He wants to make it more fruitful. And Jesus tells us precisely what kind of work the vine dresser does to ensure that fruitfulness that he's looking for in you and in the vine community. We see in verse two, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So as the vine dresser is examining the vine, he's doing something important. He's making a distinction between branches that are bearing fruit 
and branches that are not. And what does he do with the ones that are not bearing fruit? Again, in verse two, he takes them away. Or in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, which is to say that they're not bearing fruit because apart from Christ you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now those are scary verses, and they're meant to be. They're meant to be. What that's, what that's saying is that if you are not united to Christ, if you are not attached to the vine as your only source of life and fruitfulness, and if that union is not proven by fruit in your life, then you're not really a Christian. That's what that's saying. You're not really saved. And you don't have eternal life. And so God will take you up and cast you into hell. That's what these verses are saying. And don't get tripped up by that phrase in verse 2, in me. Okay, lots of people will read that and they'll get, they'll get kind of tripped up by this. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And some will argue that that means that these, these branches that were attached to the vine were at, the, at one point savingly attached to the vine, that they had true faith, but then somehow they themselves have taken, taken themselves out of abiding in Christ, that they are no longer bearing fruit. Essentially what people will interpret that is to say, this means you can lose your salvation. But... While I think you could interpret that from just that verse by itself, that would start to run into problems if you considered everything that we've seen in the Gospel of John so far. First, that John, we've seen, talks frequently about there being different levels of belief, different kinds of belief. So there is a saving belief, but then there are other people in John that are said to have believed in Jesus, and then verses later, they want to stone him. So they had some sort of attachment to Christ, some kind of experience with Christ. Maybe they were even with Christ for a long time. Think of Judas. But just because they were in Christ, so to speak, they were in his orbit, they were with him in his community, that does not mean that they were actually savingly attached to him. John establishes that very clearly. And then secondly, to say that these verses teach that you can lose your salvation would also fail to give, to give consideration to the numerous places in the Gospel of John where Jesus explicitly says that he will never lose any of the disciples, the true disciples that God has given him. John chapter 639 is a great example of this. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We've seen that sentiment repeated a number of times through the Gospel of John. It's very clear. So what these branches that are in Christ but are not bearing fruit, what that means is not that they were at one point saved and then have stopped being saved. What that means is they are false disciples. And that should be a caution to all of us in a room as we're coming here looking like disciples. You can be in this room. You can have all of the trappings of what a life in, in faith in Jesus might look like. But if you are not bearing fruit, and we'll look in a moment at what that fruit looks like, but if you are not bearing fruit, then you are a false disciple. You are not really attached to Christ in faith. You will be taken up and you will be thrown into the fire and burned. And so these passages in John are meant to be a warning to all of us to examine our lives regularly and look for the presence of fruit and make sure, yes, that I am still abiding in Christ. I think these verses are even a means of keeping us abiding in Christ. 
So the branches that don't bear fruit are burned, but then what does the vine dresser do with the branches that do bear fruit? Well, again, in verse two, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And that sounds kind of scary too, right? We've, we've, we've got the branches that get thrown into the fire, but, but if you're a true disciple, you're gonna get prunes. And this fits right in with the metaphor that the vine dresser is looking at a branch. And a good vine dresser will see a branch and he will see that, that it is bearing fruit, but he'll also be able to see the parts of that branch that are taking nutrients away from the grape cluster or keeping the nutrients from being dispersed into all of the grapes in the right way. And so a good vine dresser will know just what needs to be removed to ensure even more fruitfulness. But there is a, a cutting, there is a removing that's implied in that. And Jesus says this is what the father, the vine dresser, does to true disciples. He will prune them so that it may bear more fruit. And then in verse three, I wonder if this has ever bothered anybody else. It seems a little abrupt. He says something strange. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It seems sort of out of the blue. Why does he talk about pruning and then he starts telling them that they're clean? It didn't make sense to me for a long time and then I had a friend that grew roses and one of her favorite pastimes was to go out and clean up her rose bushes, to prune her rose bushes. And actually, John is, is saying the same thing. The word prune and the word clean are the same word. And so he's making a play on words there that, that the Father will prune you, but you, true disciple, are already clean. This is something like what Jesus was saying in chapter 13. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And so what that does is that helps us interpret the pruning work of the Father in our lives. Because this is the reality. The Father will prune us. He will work externally on us through our circumstances, through suffering, and through trials, and, and through persecution. And when those things come upon us, these verses teach us to not receive that as God's displeasure with us, as God's punishment against us, as God having something against us that he is taking out on us. No, we know that we are already clean. And so when these things come upon us, as hard as they are, as bad as they hurt, we actually receive that as God's love of God intimately studying you and your fruitfulness. And he says, this one is fruitful. And I'm going to make them more fruitful. And so I am allowing these circumstances, I am allowing these trials to happen so that they would bear more fruit. So these verses teach us that even when that pruning comes, that we can all the more praise God and love God. This is, as Hebrews 12 would say, discipline the kind of discipline that a loving father has for their child. This is Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I wonder if there's anyone in the room right now that, that knows that they're experiencing pruning be encouraged. That is a sign that God is your father, that you are attached 
to the true vine and he loves you and he wants to bear more fruit in your life. And it may be painful, but it will yield the fruit of righteousness to God's glory. Amen. So we've seen the metaphor, the vine, the vine dresser, the branches. Now let's turn with what time we have left to just look at what exactly the fruit looks like. What is the fruit that we should be looking for in our life? So in verses 7 to 17, we get the fruit of the true disciple. Because if you've been following along up to this point, this is the question that you should be asking. What is the fruit that I should be looking for? This sounds really important. <laughs> if this is the purpose that God has for me as a disciple of Jesus, this, this fruit, what fruit should I be bearing? And if this is in fact what distinguishes a true disciple from a false disciple, if this is, if this is what proves whether or not you are actually saved, it should be very important to know what that fruit actually is. And thankfully, the Bible has a lot to say about fruit in this figurative sense, in this, in this fruit that comes out of the soul state of a person. As we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, united to Christ, what would come out of a, a good tree, as Jesus says? Out of a good tree comes good fruit. Well, what is that fruit? There's a lot of places that we could go to look at this. So the verses that we just saw in Hebrews 12, 11, it talks about the fruit of righteousness. And that echoes what Isaiah was saying, doesn't it? That God looked for justice. He looked for righteousness. Other places in the New Testament, the language of fruit and especially the language of harvest is used to describe evangelism. That, that the fruit that should come out of the Christian community is souls converted into that Christian community. That, that if we indeed have been attached to Christ, saved by the love of Jesus Christ. And we should want to proclaim that salvation to other people and we should see them saved. And I think that's right. I think that, that a fruitful Christian life will be an evangelistic life. And then of course there's no more famous passage than Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit passage as it's called in verses 22 and 23 where the apostle Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And that would be a wonderful meditation for us right now. It would be a great meditation for you with your families tonight. Maybe open up Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 and consider that list. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list, but that list that Paul gives of the fruit of the Spirit and examine and see, am I growing in this fruit? Is this fruit evidence in my life? That would be a great place for us to turn. But what I want to do today is I want to stay right here in our text. And I just want to look at the fruit that I think Jesus anticipates in the following verses, because I see at least four, four kinds of fruit that Jesus describes being born out of the Christian life in our closing verses. And the first is prayer. If you look at verse seven, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Or again, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So as Jesus is 
unpacking this metaphor of our vital union with Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus anticipates that the life of the Christian will be one that's more and more spent, dedicated in prayer, of asking God for things. That's what he sees, that you're going to ask God for things. And, and that's really both the, the fruit and the means of the fruit, isn't it? That Jesus here is saying, ask God. Ask God for fruitfulness, and what will God do? He will give it to you. Do you see whatever you wish, whatever you wish will be done for you? Now, is that saying that if you wish for a Lamborghini, you will get a Lamborghini? No. Because I think another part of what Jesus knows about our union with Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us is that that union will actually start to change what it is we wish for. It will start to change what it is we will, what it is we desire, what it is that we want to ask God for, that the Holy Spirit through our union with God will start to change our very prayers so that we will start to pray for what it is that God wants for us, which is especially fruitfulness. So when Jesus says, whatever you ask according to my name, whatever you ask according to the will of God, it will be done for you. So do you hear that? This is a prayer that God will always answer. God, make me more fruitful. That is a prayer that God will always answer. He may answer it through pruning, but God wants to make you more fruitful. And Jesus expects that we would be praying for that, asking for that more. But, but here's the point. Prayer, I think, prayer is an evidence of our union with Christ. So examine your life. Is your life completely devoid of prayer? Do you give no thought to asking God for help, for encouragement, for energy for whatever it is? Are you doing it entirely by yourself? Then that might be a sign that you are not savingly attached to the vine. Prayerlessness in life is a symptom of deep pride, even damnable pride, because it confesses that I don't need God. It does not believe that apart from God I can do nothing. But I think Jesus is saying that if you appreciate the vital union that you have with Christ, then you will be brought to prayer because you know that you need God's help in everything and you will ask God for help in everything. And look, I, I am immediately convicted when we talk about this, about the, the fruit of prayer because prayer is always something where I feel like I could be doing so much better in. I could be more committed in. I could be more intentional in. But really, I've never met a Christian that says, oh yeah, I, I pray enough. I think this is all something that we know that we should grow in. And so I'm encouraged by this very passage because what does it say? If I ask God to make me better at prayer, he will do it. So we ask, God, make us a more prayerful people for your glory. So prayer is a fruit of the true disciple. And the second fruit that I see in this text is obedience obedience starting in verse 9 as the father has loved me so have I loved you abide in my love if you keep my commandments 
you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, we see Jesus, the true vine, the one that perfectly obeyed God's law, and now he's saying, obey my commandments. I think this is connected, too, to the repetition of Jesus saying, abide in my word. Okay, that, that fruitfulness for the Christian is increasing obedience to the commands of God as revealed in Scripture, which is to say that you're reading Scripture, and you're applying scripture, you're digesting scripture, you are reading the Bible and seeing that this is God commanding us to live in a certain way and that obeying that command is fruitfulness. It's even more a recognition that, like we sang in Psalm 1, God's commandments lead to blessing, that God's law is good and so we should want to submit ourselves to God's law and we should want to try with the, the energy that he provides to know and apply and keep God's word. And I love the order here, okay? This is why this metaphor is, is so helpful because it's not by obeying Christ's commandments that we become branches, is it? It's not like there's a tree looking at branches on the ground and saying, oh look, that one's bearing fruit. I'm gonna pick it up and stick it on here. That's not how it works. Jesus has attached us to himself, just like we said that Israel was not able to keep God's law apart from Christ, neither can we. It was the fact that we couldn't keep God's law, that Christ came and kept the law perfectly so that we could be attached to Christ, so that we could have life, and so that we could keep the law. This is the amazing promise of the Holy Spirit that runs all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that the promise of the Spirit in us is that it will actually enable us to obey God's law and that that is the fruit that comes out of our union with Christ. In fact, I think that these verses are saying that our abiding, you know, where Jesus commands us, abide in me and I in you, I think part of that active abiding is our keeping God's commandments and our trying to keep God's commandments. And as we do that, we will experience, wow, I actually can There's no excuse for me to be ruled by sin anymore because Christ is giving me his obedient Holy Spirit. So again, examine your life. Is your life filled with obedience to sin only? Do you care at all about what God's commandments are? Are you trying to obey God's commandments? Are you just doing whatever you want to do? Are you in fact ruled by sin? Then again, you may not be attached to the vine. But instead, do you see a desire? It's not a a perfect obedience. None of us is perfect. But do you at least see a desire to say, I do. I want to keep God's law. And do you you see that progress? If you can look at your life over a number of years, maybe if you've been a believer for a number of years, and you can look back and you say, you know what? I am much more obedient than I was five years ago. That's fruit. That's an evidence that, yes, you are attached to the vine. So God, please make us a more obedient people to your glory. The third fruit of the four that I see in this passage, the third is joy. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is a beautiful 
beautiful verse because it, it says that we will be joyful, but it's not, it's not really our joy, is it? Whose joy is it? It's Jesus' joy. He says, I say these things so that my joy may be in you and then your joy may be full. And so just stop and think about this. Think about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who is more joyful than they are? They have existed in perfect fellowship for all eternity, perfectly loving one another, perfectly delighting in one another, perfectly pleasurable, perfectly joyful. And then what does Jesus say? That's yours. Because you're united to me. And so I am pumping that sap of joy into your branches. And so your joy will overflow my joy in you. So joy is a fruit of the true disciple. And joy is often distinguished from happiness in our circumstances. This is how you can detect the presence of the fruit of joy in your life. Because it's easy to bear what looks like joy when everything is going well in your life. And say, yeah, I'm a joyful person. But, but this joy that Jesus is talking about is a joy that's not rooted in your circumstances. It's rooted in God. And you're hoping God. And it's a joy that's unshakable. So, so when you're hard-pressed, when you're suffering trials, when, when you're being pruned, what comes out of you? Is it grumbling and complaining and despair? Are you just very quick to say, forget this Jesus stuff, I'm gonna go try and find joy somewhere else because that's not working anymore. That is not the fruit of joy. But a true disciple will be will be pressed, they will be pruned, they will know that pain, and yet there will be a deep joy there, an ability to rejoice in God because of the work that God has done, because of the grace that God has shown, and because of the hope that they have in the gospel. And that joy is a fruit of the true disciple. So God, make us a more joyful people to your glory. And the last fruit that I see in this text is the fruit of love. Starting in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So some scholars see that section that I just read, which is really dead center in the farewell discourse, they see that as the thing that the whole discourse is driving to, as the most important part of the discourse, as the, the point, especially verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus tells him, you are my friends. I love you. And I'm gonna lay down my life for you in just a few hours. In chapter 12 of the book of John, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's really important verses. What is, what is Jesus saying? If Jesus didn't die, and Jesus didn't have to die, do you understand that? Jesus alone, the true vine, the one that perfectly obeyed God's law, he was the only one that didn't deserve to die. Jesus could have lived forever with God in heaven, but he would have remained alone. He wouldn't have had his friends with him. He wouldn't have had you. So Jesus says, well, if I stay alone, I don't die. I don't have my friends, but if I die for my friends, I will bear fruit. I will bear fruit in them because I love them. I will lay down my life for them. And then what does Jesus say? You should love others the way I have loved you. And this actually makes, makes perfect sense if you think about, again, the dynamic of the vine and the branches because Jesus is intrinsically in himself love. He is self-giving, sacrificial love all the time. That's just who he is. It comes out of him. It came out of him when he created the whole world out of love. And it comes out of him again when he gives up his life for his friends. Jesus is love. That's why John and 1 John would write, God is love. And if you are a branch attached to love, what should be the fruit that comes out? Love. Love just like Jesus had. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, the way that people like to throw around that phrase, God is love, and the way people talk about love in our culture today, and I was just realizing anew that we have such a messed up definition of love, don't we, in our culture, and hate. I thought about this. We have, we have a really weird definition of hate, where just disagreeing with someone is suddenly hate. You hate them. So we've got this really intense definition of hate and then love is like so weak sauce that it doesn't even do any good. When people talk about love, what do they usually mean? They mean just kind of staying out of each other's way. Don't, don't do something to somebody that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Is that the gospel? Is that the kind of love that God has? Is that what we mean when we say God is love? God so loved the world that he kind of left us on our own to do whatever felt right to us. No, the love of God is an active love. It is a self-sacrificial love. It is a giving love. It's the kind of love that Jesus enacted in the foot washing that we looked at last week. An act of service that portrays the gospel that God would give up everything that he has, his own life, so that he could have his friends with him, that he would seek their good, that he would do to them what they would have him do to them, that we would do to others what we would have them do to us. That's the gospel kind of love. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so this is what Jesus is saying, that the fruit of love maybe is the most important love or the most important fruit that this text has been Driving to. This is the fruit that we, we pray for more obedience to joyfully carry out that we would love one another the way Christ has loved us by laying down our lives in a thousand little ways that we would at cost to ourselves try and give up our resources to meet the needs of someone else, to give up our time, to give up our comfort so that we would seek the good 
of other people. That's the fruit of love, and that is the community that fulfills the purposes of the true vine. I think that is the community that God has wanted all along, a community of self-sacrificing love towards one another. And if we can be that community, if we can bear that fruit, it will prove that we are Christ's disciples because we loved the way he loved, but it will also glorify the Father. So God, make us a more loving people to your glory. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing promise that whatever we ask in your name, you will do for us. So Lord, we do ask, one, that you would, you would do that work of discerning between true and false disciples, even right now. And, and if there's anyone here that, that is maybe even realizing there's not fruit in their life, God, would you convict them and would you help them to not be discouraged, but to turn to Christ who is the only source of life and fruitfulness. Lord, would you help them to believe in faith even right now and for the rest of us? God, would you remind us again of our union with Christ and all that is ours? And would you help us to bear fruit that glorifies you? Most of all, would you help us to be a community that loves one another the way you have loved us? In Jesus' name, amen.